Welcome to Knowing Nature, a podcast about environmental education. I'm your host, Victor. In this podcast, I speak with other educators and people in the environmental sector about their perspectives and practices for helping people to connect with the natural world. In this episode, we're going to be discussing ways to support LGBTQ students. We talk about how at the undergraduate and also the high school level, students are not just learning subject content, they are also thinking about where they can see themselves in the future. So having an out teacher or instructor can make a huge impact on how accepted LGBTQ students think they will be if they choose to continue on in a particular subject. My guest also shares concrete recommendations for creating more inclusive learning environments and suggestions for reducing the anxiety which can come about as a consequence of the social interactions involved in most active learning practices. Joining me today is Dr. Sarah Brownell, professor in the School of Life Sciences at Arizona State University and principal investigator of the Brownell Biology Education Research Group. Welcome to the podcast, Sarah. Great. Thank you, Victor, for having me. So it's always nice to get to know uh, the guests a a little bit. So could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. So I'm trained as a biologist, specifically a neuroscientist. And when I was in graduate school, I got really excited Uh, about teaching and through um, my teaching experiences ended up wanting to get more of an academic foundation to teaching. So I started taking education courses and I actually kind of stumbled into the field of biology education research where you're actually using systematic approaches to try to improve the way we teach. Um, I didn't even know that that field existed when I started my PhD in neuroscience. And once I discovered that, then I found myself basically wanting to transition and and do that. And so I ended up going on and completing additional training in biology education research. And now as a professor in the School of Life Sciences at Arizona State University, I teach biology classes, um, but my research is strictly in biology education research. So I basically try to find ways to improve the way we teach biology, mostly through a lens of equity and inclusion. And the context in which it seems like a lot of the research happens is higher education. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. So a lot of this field focuses on um, higher education, on on both undergraduate and graduate STEM education. And that is the, the focus of my work. It's thinking specifically about the unique context of undergraduate courses and how we can improve those courses. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been going through some of the, the research that the research group has put out, and there's some principles that would apply in other contexts as well, certainly at the high school level. But I think things m- might shift a little bit as you move down just because the subject isn't taught in quite the same way in, in the same context, I guess. Yeah, the subject is going to be different. And then um, a real profound difference is um, when I'm teaching, I'm teaching 300 students in a large lecture hall, right? And so a lot of my work has focused on these very large introductory gateway undergraduate STEM courses, where at a lot of institutions, they're 100, 200, 500, 1000 students large. And so that's a very different dynamic than K through 12 classroom. Before we jump into um, some of the details of the research and some of the ways it can help other educators, I was wondering if you might have uh, maybe a positive experience with a teacher that kind of motivated you. Yeah. So, I mean, I think we all have had both positive and negative experiences with instructors, both of which I I can uh, very much say have influenced how I think about teaching, how I think about 
how I design a course, how I want to interact with students. So I would say probably the most profound interaction that I had in terms of someone thinking about teaching was actually not an undergraduate instructor, but rather one of my mentors in my postdoctoral training. She gave me a lot of advice about how to do research, but then she also gave me quite a bit of advice about teaching. And at that time, I thought I was a pretty good teacher and I showed her my teaching evaluations and they were all fairly positive. And she sat down and and looked through them and she was like, well, they all say that, you know, the students like you and that you're funny and that, you know, they, they like the class, but there's not a whole lot of substance in these teaching evaluations. And she really pushed me to think about how I could create more equitable classrooms by really being attentive to student identities. And at that point, I just wasn't doing that at all. And, and she really made me think critically about how I wanted to set up my courses and, and how I wanted to kind of engage students. And I, I saw a dramatic shift in the quality of, of my teaching evaluations after that, where students started talking much more about how I was centering them um, in the classroom, creating much more student-centered instruction and really being attentive to student needs. Were you finding that students were also learning more at the same time, like making those connections? Did that help them academically as well as, as sort of personally? Yeah, that's a great question. It's actually a really hard question to to say with 100% certainty, right? Because to actually set up that kind of experiment is is hard because I changed as an instructor, I got more knowledgeable about teaching, you know, the students were different students. But I will say that their self-report indicated that, that they their self-report indicated and this matches what we know in the literature, that when students feel more of a connection to the instructor, when they feel like they can bring their whole selves to the classrooms, when they feel like they can be more authentic, then they're going to be more motivated, that they're going to try harder, that they're theoretically then going to learn more. And of course, there's more than academics to to higher education as, as well. I know that when I was an undergraduate, I was learning a lot, not just academically, but also about myself personally and making personal connections with my instructors and with my peers was a really huge part of it. Like I, I know a lot of us who've, who've been through university and college, when we think back on those times, a lot of the friends that we made there we're still quite close with. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think sometimes we think about you know education and, and higher education in particular as just a collection of grades that someone gets at the end of the semester. But if you think about it, you know, largely we're trying to help students see themselves in a potential career. So yes, there's, you know, can you measure a, a learning gain from some kind of intervention that you do? But then I think equally important is to what extent do they feel like they belong in that discipline, in that career path? To what extent do they choose to persist in that? To what extent do they choose to, to go on? And in, in my case, with the students that I'm working with, want to grow up and become a biologist, right? Or become a scientist. And so, you know, I think equally important as a, as a small change in, in their actual grades at the end, it's, it's how they actually feel about the material and, and the environment. That brings us on to, I guess, the the real meat and potatoes of this uh, particular interview. We're uh, talking a bit about LGBTQ plus identities on the podcast in recent episodes. And a question that I've asked some of the other guests is, to, to what extent are these identities relevant when you're teaching a STEM subject like biology? Because there's the the thought that, oh, it's a science, it should just be about, you know, the concepts and, you know, the equations or, you know, the Krebs cycle or whatnot. So just teach me about that. Why does student or instructor identity matter? Yeah, that is such an important point. And I think that for, for far too long, that has been the, the dominant assumption, right? That the assumption is, is that science is objective and that people's individual identities don't affect science and that we can just teach the facts and that's all we need to teach. 
And we know more and more so that that's just wrong. <laughs> it's just it's just completely inaccurate. First off, science isn't 100% objective, right? Who is doing science has an impact over the science that's done, how things are being interpreted, right? And and the conclusions that ultimately get made, right? So so um, the assertion that science is objective is wrong, and and there's a really strong argument for um, having a more diverse team of individuals. Um, doing science, right, and bringing their unique experiences and uh, backgrounds and identities into into the problems that they're solving, because it'll potentially lead to to better solutions, right? Studies have shown that more diverse teams lead to better solutions because you can basically counteract bias. Um, now, in terms of of specifically LGBTQ identity, so that would be true of, of any identity. In terms of LGBTQ identity specifically, right, there are a lot of examples of specifically in biology where LGBTQ identity intersects with the content. You know, if, if we look historically, there's actually been a study done of, of looking at textbooks and the extent to which LGBTQ individuals are discussed in textbooks. It's often just discussed in a negative context, mostly in the context of thinking about HIV and AIDS. And we really want to try to change that narrative, right, and, and help LGBTQ students realize that you know, when we're teaching about reproduction or physiology or genetics or evolution, some of the um, the ways that biologists might teach about these things could be taught in a very heteronormative, gender normative way that actually can make LGBTQ individuals feel highly excluded from the conversation, right? Um, and so by bringing identity more into, into the classroom, and, and even ultimately into the research, it's trying to, to basically sever some of those assumptions about the heteronormative and gender normative nature of biology and, and help students realize that actually biology is quite complex. Actually, there are lots of different examples of multiple genders or a gender spectrum, right? There are often, you know, there are examples from, from other animals, not just, not just, just humans of, of different kind of LGBTQ type experiences. So so I think that it becomes really important for us to realize that actually identity, so not only is, is science not objective and who does it matters, but actually specifically for LGBTQ identity in the context of biology, it becomes even more important because otherwise we're going to be making assumptions and potentially teaching science in a way that's completely inaccurate to our students. Yeah. So some of the uh, other discussions we've had on the podcast recently have been on things like same-sex sexual behavior and the way in which that's been interpreted in other animal groups and how limited it's been in a lot of research until maybe around the, the 90s or, or so. Basically, when queer identity kind of moved into or queer theory sort of came into the life science realm and kind of broke down those binaries that were really restricting the way in which scientists were, were viewing their data and viewing the world. Absolutely. And I think we need to really even be more thoughtful about the terminology we use. You know, do we describe something as abnormal versus normal, right? Do we describe something as a mutant versus not? Do we describe something as trying to fix something? Because it, it, is, uh, it is asserting a certain uh, norm to whatever that is. And, and it becomes really dangerous when we're, you know, talking about things that could actually affect students' identities in the classroom, right? And so, you know, for instructors to become more aware of that is, is really important. Actually, a group 
of biologists and I a few years ago wrote a set of recommendations for how we can teach biology um, in a more inclusive way for LGBTQ students. And we highlighted just kind of general things in terms of how you can structure the class and, and give students options to present their pronouns and their preferred names and highlight that there's a whole terminology associated with LGBTQ students. But specifically in there, we also talked about, well, how can you teach genetics in a way that's more LGBTQ inclusive, right? How can you teach reproduction in a way that's more LGBTQ um, inclusive? And as we've, I guess, mentioned, it's not just about making it inclusive for the students. In in a lot of ways, it actually reflects what's going on in nature more accurately because you're not restricting the the diversity and the spectrum that's that is present in nature and reducing it down into a binary. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. And so it actually is making the science that's being taught better for all the students. That's some discussion about how it's the relevance of these identities into the field. Um, what about the relevance for for in the education context for the students? I would say over the last number of years, there's been just a, a real increase in the number of discussions about representation in the classroom and about bringing people's identities into the classroom and and highlighting the importance of as I mentioned previously, these diverse teams and diverse teams are going to kind of lead to better science. So, so there's been a shift in, I think, in, in the language and science and an acknowledgement of what identities we should be able to bring into the classroom. But a large part of that discussion has really centered specifically on, on race, ethnicity, and, and gender. And I would say very little of it has actually focused on LGBTQ identity. And there's still, in many ways, stigma associated with LGBTQ identity, where it's, it, I think a lot of folks, LGBTQ individuals, as well as non-LGBTQ individuals, are really worried about bringing up this identity in the context of a formal classroom because there's some perception that it's inappropriate, that it's something that because it's related to to sex in some way, that then it should be something that, that isn't actually talked about in the class, regardless of the fact that this LGBTQ identity encompasses far more than, than just a specific kind of sexual behavior, right? So, so increasingly, you know, we've seen this call for increased um, identity in the classroom, but still a large number of LGBTQ individuals have still chosen to to not share their identity in the classroom. So a few years ago, we did a study where we interviewed um, LGBTQ undergraduates in a class, and we you know asked them a bunch of questions about their identity and how relevant their identity is. And something that was really interesting to us is increasingly college science classrooms, people are trying to get students to talk more to each other in the classroom. They're trying to get students to interact more. And we know that on average, students, if they interact more and build on each other's ideas, they're actually going to learn more in the classroom. And so there's there's actually really robust data at this point to highlight that that way of learning is going to be better. But when we talk to these LGBTQ students about their experiences in these classrooms with heightened levels of interaction, they discussed how their LGBTQ identity actually ended up being far more relevant. Because when they started discussing things with people, then it often segued into discussions about what they were doing that weekend and who they might be dating, right? And and just conversations about other things where students might have to be put in a situation where they would have to come out, they would have to evade the question somehow, or they would have to actually lie. And they, they said that in a traditional lecture class where they just sit there they could basically just be invisible and no one would have to know anything about their identity. But in these more discussion-based courses, 
their identity became more relevant. Now, they highlighted that for the most part, they didn't feel comfortable revealing their identity because they were worried about people judging them. They were worried that people might not want to work with them. They were worried that someone might make fun of them, et cetera. Um, they did say that if they felt like they could actually bring their whole selves to the group, if they could actually share their identity and they didn't feel like they were going to be judged, that that could be a really positive thing, that they felt like they could form closer relationships with people because they could be more authentic. But they they were just very hesitant. And they were worried because there was this, this underlying assumption that LGBTQ identity is an inappropriate identity to share in the context of a, of a formal class. And so something also that we talked about in this context was we were like, well, what if an instructor in one of your STEM classrooms revealed their LGBTQ identity? How would that make you feel? And these students were like, oh my gosh, that would be like a life-changing experience. That would be the coolest thing ever to have someone, the instructor at the front of the room, actually have the same identity as me. But then every student that we interviewed was like, but they shouldn't come out. They shouldn't reveal their identity. And we were like, why shouldn't they? And they were like, we're worried that they're going to get bad teaching evaluations. What if they get fired? What if people make fun of them? And I could see people not wanting to take their class because they know that they're LGBTQ, um, I have... LGBTQ identity. And so that we that caused us to really step back. And we were like, not only are we creating these classroom spaces where these students' identities are potentially more relevant, there's many more opportunities for them to potentially feel the need to reveal their identity or else they're having to lie about it. But if in these cases, they think that the person with the most authority at the front of the room, that instructor, they're worried about them revealing their identity and the negative consequences that could result. How do we expect these students to feel comfortable revealing their identity, right? And so at that point, we were like, well, have you had instructors reveal their identity? And the students that we interviewed, none of them had had a STEM instructor reveal their LGBTQ identity, right? And so they were just like, I just don't think it would happen. I just, I, I think it'd be weird. I, I just don't think that, that someone would do that. And so I identify as a member of the LGBTQ community. I, I identify as gay. And so I was teaching this large enrollment 300 person class. And I was out to students in my research group. I would come out to students when they'd come to office hours if, if it got brought up, but I never formally came out to students in front of the whole class. I just, I mean, I think that if I had to really think about it, I probably thought that it was inappropriate, right? Like I felt like that was a weird thing to bring up. I talked about my dog in front of them. Like I talked about like my academic journey, but I, I didn't bring up the fact that I was a member of the LGBTQ community. And so after we did these interviews and after we heard these students talk about how impactful it would be, I was like, all right, well, I just would be completely hypocritical at this point, knowing this, to not actually start coming out. Starting the very next semester, the very first day of class, I have a, a slide where I talk about how I love hiking. I talk about how I love my dog. And I talk about how I'm a proud member of the LGBTQ community. And it takes me all of three seconds to share that I'm a member of the LGBTQ community. But then that way, every student in that class knows that, right? And then, you know, uh, inevitably, students will come and email and, and, and talk to me in office hours, you know, especially if they're members of the LGBTQ community to figure out how to navigate their journey or to ask potential questions. But I think that more importantly, it just starts to normalize it. It, it becomes this thing that that isn't such a big deal. It's just just like the fact that I I like um, you know hiking and I like my dog, I'm also a member of of this community, and my hope is that that this has a positive impact on students. And we've actually now subsequently done some studies, and our preliminary data suggests that actually 
students are finding it really helpful having an instructor reveal their identity, even as little as three seconds in a class doing that. It seems to have a positive impact on their sense of belonging, on on their how they feel in terms of their relationship with the instructor. They feel like the instructor is more human. So in the ideal world, more instructors potentially will start to reveal these identities to just make it a, a more normalized part of, of the experience to bring their whole selves to the classroom. It sounds like students bring a, an image of what they think the institution's attitudes and values are when they come into that class. So whether or not having a discussion about one of the teacher's sexuality, whether or not that teacher would be supported in that, being concerned about that teacher's career and, and welfare. Absolutely. And I think it's not just the students that are doing it. Like I was also doing that. I didn't think I was going to be fired for bringing up my LGBTQ identity in the classroom, right? But I had that hesitation. I felt like, well, is it actually appropriate? Like, should I actually do it? And only when these students helped me realize that actually my philosophy of trying to create an inclusive classroom and really trying to be supportive for these LGBTQ students really necessitated that I actually reveal that identity, at least for me personally. So so I felt like I was doing it. We've actually done interviews with LGBTQ biology um, instructors at a bunch of different institutions across the United States and asked them, you know, do you reveal your identity in the classroom or not? And far more individuals reveal their identity to students in their research groups or to students kind of one-on-one in office hours, then actually reveal in the classroom. And then when we've asked why, really interestingly, a lot of instructors have never thought about the positive benefits on students if they revealed their identity. So we actually thought that they were going to be more focused in on some of the negatives. And sure, they're worried about, you know, will my teaching evaluations go down? Will I, you know, potentially um, have kind of a negative interaction? Will I make someone feel uncomfortable? They didn't simultaneously think about, well, what are all the positive benefits that could happen in the classroom by bringing my whole selves there? In fact, most of the people that we interviewed, the reason that they revealed their LGBTQ identity was really because they wanted to be authentic in the classroom. It was really focused on themselves as opposed to focused on themselves as well as the students in the class. And so our hope with this work, and and so we've actually gotten additional funding, and now we're in the process of starting actually a a study across the United States looking at the impact of LGBTQ instructors coming out um, in the context of a formal class and looking at, at how this affects students, not just LGBTQ students actually, but all students in their classes. Our hope is that this increased data highlighting potential positives will encourage more LGBTQ instructors if they feel comfortable to actually reveal their identity. And to again, go back to this, just normalizing it, making it so that it's not this huge thing that actually it's this thing that's a part of your identity, just like every other part of your identity. What is it, do you think, about the LGBTQ plus identity that makes it individuals feel like it it might be inappropriate to bring up specifically? Because there are other aspects of identity that just you we broadcast all the time, marital status or whether you have pets. Like These are all aspects of personal life that generally people are quite free bringing into their professional or teaching context. So what is it about LGBTQ plus identity that makes people a bit more hesitant if it's not just about the, the worry about stigma or negative impact? Yeah. So, so LGBTQ identity most of the time would be considered what we call a concealable stigmatized identity, right? And so there are other cases of concealable stigmatized identity. So if someone struggles with 
addiction. If someone grew up uh, low income, that could be considered a concealable stigmatized identity. Actually, in the context of biology, religious identity could be considered a concealable stigmatized identity because biology is often thought to be atheistic and that religious individuals are often not uh, welcome in biology context. So, so all of these would be considered concealable stigmatized identities. So, so LGBTQ status has this, the same kind of challenges of you have to make that decision to reveal, right? And so that becomes a stressful process. And then there's some kind of stigma associated, associated with it that causes the person to worry about a negative implication of them revealing their identity. Now, why is LGBTQ identity different than other identities. I mean, quite frankly, it's it's because of the emphasis on sex. And so there's actually been a movement to try to move away from language like sexual orientation or sexual identity or sexuality to, to really try to move away from that overt emphasis on sex to um, the, the language that I always use is LGBTQ identity, right? That like it's highlights that it's an identity that encompasses far more than that, right? It encompasses just general romantic relationships, right? For some individuals, sex is even part of the equation, right? For individuals who identify as asexual, their identity is is not at all like a, a set of sexual behaviors. So it's because of, I think, the that taboo that we have associated with sex and sexuality that for whatever reason is often, I think, what's brought to mind first when people reveal this identity. And so, you know, I, I think that that again, that's why using the term LGBTQ identity can highlight that it's this broader kind of identity more than just that set of behaviors. I can see why, because of the emphasis on sex, why a lot of people would feel like it's not something to bring up in the context of a classroom, because that is that is an aspect of personal life that is something that we don't generally talk about outside of a closer friend circles or you know, right. more intimate settings. Whereas, as you've mentioned, in an undergraduate classroom, you're talking to 100, 200, 300 people. And that's, that is not usually the context in which one talks about sex usually. Yeah, but I think what's so, you know, and I'm not at all advocating for LGBTQ <laughs> instructors to talk about sex in the classroom, unless they're talking about, you know, reproduction in the context of biology. And then I think that's yes, yes. an accurate, you know, description of that. But some of the students we interviewed highlighted that they could see the hypocrisy, right? They could see straight professors talking about their significant others and they wouldn't think anything about it. And then they were like, but if an LGBTQ instructor talked about their, you know, same gender partner, that that would be weird, right? And they were like, I realize that it's weird that I think it's weird. They could they could wrap their head around how they didn't want to feel that way, but for whatever reason, they still did. And I, I think it's you know, it, it still goes back to the fact that we still exist in a society that largely is uh, heteronormative and gender normative, right? And and we grow up with these ideals as far as um, expectations, as far as, you know, what partnerships should look like. And for LGBTQ individuals, this is, is changing that narrative. So you've mentioned in there that part of what's been spurring some more instructors to come out to their classes is this desire to be a bit more authentic in their teaching practice. And that's something that that's part of why I really wanted to approach this subject in in this podcast is because I've been very concentrated on building up inclusion and uh, uh, inclusive practices and focusing on the content. But I've, I feel like oddly, I'm kind of even though I'm out in my professional context, I'm out to all my friends, but on the podcast, like it feels like I'm in the closet. So, and also in my teaching practice, I feel like I'm kind of in the 
in the closet. I, I don't bring that part of myself to it. But being authentic has an effect on on the learning experience. And one of the ways in which a lot of instructors and, and educators will attempt to bring a bit of that personal touch into what they do is through the use of humor. But sometimes what I've seen in using humor, at least in a, a biology sort of natural history context, is these, there's a lot of humor about using examples from the natural world as ways of either making a joke about how it mirrors expected gender roles or uh, subverting those roles in, in some way. Uh, and I'm wondering if you talk a bit about, about that, because I know that some of the research has been on how use of humor affects different groups of students, and students don't always respond the same way to, to different types of joke, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so I think going back to what you were first saying, being more authentic in the classroom, I would say largely is, is good, right? And historically, science instructors and STEM instructors are perceived of as chilly and cold. You teach the facts and you don't share anything about kind of who you are. And for students, it can be really positive to hear more about who the instructor is as a, as a person, right? And, and this can be done in lots of different ways, right? So revealing that you're a member of the LGBTQ community can do that. And, and some of the data that we have actually shows that it, it does it not just for LGBTQ students, but actually for the majority of students in the class. It It's you are becoming more human-like, right? Um, as opposed to kind of that robot at the front of the room that just, you know, reads your, your lecture slides. You know, but there are lots of other ways that, that you could do that, right? Whether it's using students' first names as you're walking around the, the classroom, whether it's, you know, asking students about how they're doing at points, whether it's sending out, you know, more frequent emails and, and kind of engaging in dialogue there. And then something that we've focused in on is instructors' use of humor and how that can affect the student experience. And we found that students largely really appreciate it when instructors use humor. Do they have to actually be funny? No. And that was actually really encouraging because I think we've all tried to like, tell a joke in class and sometimes it lands and sometimes it just doesn't land at all. And really encouragingly, even if it kind of completely bombs out, if the students think that you're trying and trying to kind of build that relationship, then that seems to be largely beneficial for, for the students. And a lot of it is all about relationship building. You're helping yourself feel more like a real person. You're, you're indicating through that use of humor that you're caring about your students, you're trying to make the classroom engaging. So all of that can be really positive. Now where it changes based on who the students are is the subject, right? So this is the topic that you're joking about, right? And so that gets at kind of your latter point. The reality is, is, is most things are funny because they're making fun of something or someone. Some instructors try to take a very self-deprecating approach, right, to, to their own characteristics or their own bodies or who they are. And they think that that's kind of safe. But it's also important to realize that there's some students who identify with some of those characteristics of you. So by making fun of yourself, are you also then making fun of students who also share those characteristics, right? So, so those are, I think, important things to think about. And so in, in general, if something is, is funny and not offensive, it seems to be positive for students. But if something is funny and deemed offensive, then it can actually have a, a detrimental effect on students. And it can be really detrimental in terms of thinking about inclusion more broadly, because some of our studies have actually shown that that more marginalized or minoritized groups, right, whether it's women, whether it's um, students who would be from underserved racial or ethnic backgrounds, uh, whether it's LGBTQ students, they are often more likely to be offended by a joke. 
And so conversely, the people in those privileged majority groups are less likely to be offended by a joke. So then the positive impact of the humor actually then disproportionately goes to the people in more privileged or majority status group. You know, I, I think it's relevant in thinking about biologists in particular like joking about sex. It's often a frequent thing that, that people joke about. And I would encourage, and based on the studies we've done, that they don't do that, right? Because that can be really offensive to a lot of students. And especially if you're reinforcing exactly, as you said, some kind of gender stereotype, or even if you're presenting the opposite of that, but then presenting the opposite makes it funny, it can make students in the class feel feel really uncomfortable, right? You know, we've been talking mostly about LGBTQ students broadly, but two really interesting trends have happened over the past eight years or so that I've been doing work in this area. One, the percentage of LGBTQ students has increased. So it used to be around kind of five, 6% of students in a typical undergraduate biology class. Now it's up to like 15 to 16% of students. So we're talking about a much larger percentage of students. And then also the percentage of students that we see who identify as non-gender binary has also increased. So anytime we're making jokes about men versus women, we're leaving out that section of the the class who identifies as non-binary. And we're reinforcing the narrative that you have to be a woman or a man and that there isn't a gender spectrum, which we know that there is, right? And that can be really offensive to a lot of students. So so in general, in terms of humor and, and bringing your authentic self into the class, I'd say, yes, try to use humor, but joke about things that are not going to be offensive, particularly are not going to be offensive to groups who are already underserved and marginalized, who we actually you know, want to elevate and, and help bring up. We talked already a little bit about this trend in, in education more generally and also in higher education towards uh, active learning, more small group type activities, that kind of thing. But as you mentioned, this means that students are interacting more with each other. That means identity is more likely to come up. Are there any tips that you might have for educators who might want to make these group interactions a more positive experience rather than a, a nerve wracking one? So I am a huge advocate of active learning and student-centered instruction and getting students to interact. I teach in these ways and and I encourage other instructors to, to teach in these ways. So I'm not at all saying just to stop teaching this way, but I am saying that with any new teaching practice, there are going to be unintended consequences. And I, I think that in a lot of ways, we started developing more of this interaction in the context of these really large enrollment college courses. And, and that is a, it's a different dynamic than in a 12 person or 20 person K through 12 classroom, right? Where the instructor can wander around to every single group, can listen in on every single group. Everyone knows each other's names. The classroom feels like a community. When you're talking about a 300, 400, 500 person class, it's a very different environment. Bringing in some of these techniques from K-12 into higher education, I think has largely been really positive, right? And I think it's been a really positive boost to student learning to highlight how much more effective it is for students to actively engage in their learning as opposed to passively listening. But we have unintended consequences now. So I would encourage any instructor teaching in an active learning way to really be thoughtful about how they're teaching. So active learning is an umbrella term, right, that includes all kinds of different teaching strategies. So we typically contrast a like lecture where all the instructor does at the front of the room is just talk at students to active learning. But active learning can involve group work. It can involve clicker questions where students will answer in using an anonymous device and, and the instructor can see, you know, what percentage of the class 
you know, gets a particular question right or wrong. It could involve students going up to a whiteboard and like drawing out things. It could be students working on a worksheet through problems. It could be students working individually, then sharing their answer with in front of whole, the whole class. So there's so many different permutations as far as active learning. And I think that often something that gets missed in this discussion is we fall into this binary thinking of it's active learning versus lecture. Active learning is better than lecture. Everyone should do active learning, but we don't highlight when we're saying active learning, there are so many different things that we could possibly do. Some of these challenges that arise in terms of identity could be in how we're actually teaching in an active learning way. What we have seen from a number of different studies that we've done is that yes, identities matter more in active learning. And so that means that we need to build time in for students to get to know each other. So like the first time you're meeting someone, that is a really stressful encounter, right? You're worried that maybe bringing up your identity, will they be okay with it? If you have anxiety, that can be a really highly anxious situation. But the more you interact with someone, the more comfortable you get with someone, that could be better. There are things that instructors can do in terms of helping to build up the classroom culture to be inclusive. So the instructor can highlight that sometimes the quietest person has the best ideas. The instructor can highlight that we're going to be respectful of everyone's identity. The instructor can build in time at the very beginning of class for students to actually share aspects of themselves or their identities. So a concrete suggestion is you know, does the instructor give students the opportunity to share their pronouns? If we're having students work in groups, pronouns are going to come up, right? As you're sharing out, you're going to be like, he said this, she said this, they said that. And if there's no mechanism by which students can actually share their pronouns, it's going to be a lot more awkward. But something that I've advocated for is actually using name tents in classrooms where you can put a piece of cardstock in front of you. You can put your name there. It can help build classroom community by people using names as opposed to, hey, you. And then it's super easy to also be able to put your pronouns just at the bottom of that card. So then people can look and immediately bear reminded of what pronoun you want them to use. And I've actually had some students who are in the process of trying to kind of figure out which pronouns that they were most comfortable with. They would have they, them on one side of their name tent and she, her on another side. And depending on who they worked with and how they were feeling that day, they might actually display one set of pronouns or not. So that really gave that student a lot of autonomy to be able to feel kind of most authentic and most comfortable in the classroom. So I would encourage instructors to try to use what, what has been dubbed instructor talk, and that's kind of everything in the classroom that's not related to the content itself, highlighting that we're a classroom community, highlighting classroom norms to learn how to collaborate with other people, to respect other people and their identities, and then also giving concrete opportunities for people to be able to kind of reveal their identities. We've done a bunch of work looking at student anxiety in particular, uh, and what we have found in the context of large enrollment classes is that Calling on a single student and forcing them to share in front of 300 other students is really anxiety inducing. And in many ways, it's actually not replicating what is so useful about active learning, because what is so useful about active learning is the student is actively engaged and they're able to verbalize their thoughts. And that process is, is thought to be useful for their learning. Well, when a student is so anxious about the possibility of being called on in front of a whole class, we've had students talk about how their mind just goes blank. They stop thinking, or even if they've thought through the problem, when they choose to actually share out in front of the whole class, they can't actually get the words out because they're so nervous. So, so the type of anxiety that is, that's actually communication anxiety. And, and so you as the instructor may think that the student doesn't actually know what they're talking about, but they do 
They just aren't comfortable sharing it out in front of 300 people. If you had asked them to write it down on a piece of paper, their answer might have been 100% correct, right? So, so in that case, I would encourage instructors to think, do you have to have students share out in front of all the students in the class? Or could you adapt your active learning to only be students talking to each other one-on-one? And that, could there be anonymous ways in which they share out with the whole class, right? And there are um, new technological advances that make this very easy. I think that there are ways in which we can be teaching active learning that help celebrate people's identity, allow people to actually bring their whole selves into the classroom, but also allow them to to not be overly stressed or, or overly distraught because of that need to kind of reveal their identity in the context of active learning. It's interesting that a lot of those things are elements that are there from, from as you mentioned, K through 12 education practices, and it kind of gets dropped off at the higher ed levels. But all those practices are present at the K through 12 level for, for reasons, because they kind of work. Absolutely. Yeah, it's something that in uh, outdoor and environmental education outside of the school context, I'm always encouraging educators bring some of those classroom elements into your practice because teachers do them for a reason because they're effective. Yeah. Yeah. And I think sometimes college instructors in, in higher education, I think that they think some of these things are too trivial to do and they feel too babyish. And I know that I've had colleagues say that about the name tents in the classroom. And they're like, are we really going to have like everyone's like name card out in front of them? And I'm like, when you go to a conference, everyone wears a little name badge, right? Like, so, you know, you can think that it's trivializing it, or you can think about actually it's mimicking what's happening in professional societies when you go to a conference that using names it is a really important way of engaging with other people, right? So why not try to find a way to, to integrate that into the classroom? Absolutely. And I imagine that would help the instructor as well, talking to a couple hundred people just to like learn names. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and we've actually done a study where, you know, it's super overwhelming to try to learn 50 names, let alone 300 names. And most instructors feel like they can't actually do that. And what's so great about name tense is you don't have to do that, right? You can use their name without actually knowing their name and students can still receive some of the positive benefits of feeling like the instructor cares because they still get to hear their name verbally said in the classroom. You've talked about how active learning, there's a huge spectrum of it. One of the things that's being advocated for at the K through 12 level that I, I don't know if it's reaching higher ed and or um, it's also it's not really worked its way into outdoor and environmental education outside of classroom settings is flexibility in terms of what the task is. I think that's something that's been highlighted in in some of your research as well, is that if you are requiring a group work, not everyone is necessarily comfortable with that for whatever reason and being flexible in what you're asking in, in the task uh, can be really helpful for, for some students as well. That actually segues nicely to an emerging body of literature that my research group has been doing, um, which is looking at, at students with disabilities in the context of higher education STEM and specifically thinking about, are they getting the accommodations they need in these evolving learning environments like active learning? And we've largely shown that they're not, that a lot of the standard accommodations are set up so that it works really well in a traditional lecture class and it doesn't work so well when students are in groups or they're doing work primarily online. There, there's not this kind of standard suite of accommodations that they can choose from. And so often they're getting accommodations late and retroactively and they're they're not getting the learning experiences that, that really in the United States were legally mandated to give students. And so I think it actually relates to your question in terms of If you can create more what we would call universally designed classrooms where fewer students actually need accommodations, that could actually be a really good thing. Could you present students 
of, you know, a menu of options as far as what they can do. And this can be, you know, how they're assessed, right? The, you know, does, does everyone have to take a high stakes assessment or could some students who really struggle with high stakes assessments do an alternative assignment? Are there ways in which you can build into your class the option where one day you do one type of active learning strategy, the next day you do a different active learning strategy, the next day you do a different one. So maybe students are going to prefer one, but then that way that they have they have different options on different days, or even can you make it so that they have different options on the same day? So something concrete that I try to do in my classes is I often have students use worksheets and I used to do it where there'd be one worksheet per group. So one worksheet per group of three, and that forces everyone to work on a group. Well, some students don't want to work in groups, right? And, and you know, my philosophy as an instructor is that I want the students to learn, right? And, and I will tell them that on average, they will likely get more out of a group experience than an individual experience because you're going to have other people to build off of your ideas, to critique your ideas, to counteract what you're thinking, right? And that, based on our existing um, literature out there, should be a, a more effective learning experience. But for a student who's incredibly socially anxious, maybe that's not better for them, right? For a student who uh, is struggling with depression and that's just a really like bad day for them and they don't really want to talk to people, that might not work for them. For a student who has a chronic um, health issue and a disability, they might not be able to actually come to class and engage. So are there ways in which they can still engage with the material? And so something super easy that I've started doing is instead of one worksheet for three students, Every student gets their own worksheet, right? And and you can choose. If you want to work by yourself, you can. I encourage you to work in a group because, again, on average, that's going to be better. But if you want to still come to class and still do it on your own, I'd still rather have that student come to class, right, and still rather have them learn as opposed to completely shutting down if they have anxiety, if they have depression, right, or if they're having a really off day. Yeah, so the, the option is there for them. For sure, Yeah. And I think that the, the complication of that is when you're teaching large enrollment classes, it's harder to think about multiple options. But I would argue that that instructors need to start thinking about that. Right. And I think that there's you know, we don't want to offer so many options that it becomes completely overwhelming for the instructor. But I think that there is kind of a middle ground here. At the K through 12 level, teachers will often mix up the way in which they kids in group. You've highlighted a lot of ways in which presenting students with options that they might be more comfortable with can can really help a lot of students. However, are there some circumstances where pushing students out of their comfort zones in different ways or mixing groups that wouldn't normally mix might be beneficial? Uh, a paper that I read in preparation for this was mentioning that s- students t- will tend to self-sort in a classroom if you ask them like, okay, put yourself in groups. They'll self-sort into basically similar groups of based on on gender or uh, similar academic background. And so if that is allowed to happen, are they losing some of the benefits of those group activities because you're essentially grouping up with with like-minded people? This is this is like the million dollar question I think right now. And I can't tell you how many instructors um, ask me this question and uh, and are grappling with this question. And there are lots of different ways in which you can set up groups, right? You can set up groups based on, you know, differences in GPA, right? You have an A student, a B student, a C student, a D student, right? In in a group. Some people set up groups like that. Some people set up groups based on, you know, more shared interests or backgrounds. Some people set it up so they intentionally don't want um, a single woman in a group of the rest men or a single uh, student from an underserved racial or ethnic background um, to be in a, in a group with, with all white students, for example. 
the literature is just really mixed on this right now. And so I don't have um, any solid recommendations. I think a lot more work needs to be done. And it's really hard because these things are really nuanced, right? And, and I would encourage folks to really think about what is the goal of the group work? So most of the time when I'm asking students to work together in a class, I'm asking them to learn some content in biology. And I know that by working in a group that they are going to probably be more engaged, that they're going to have someone else to bounce ideas off of when they get stuck, that they could have someone else correct their thinking because I can't get around to every group. So for my purposes, I'm not trying to get to a final like project that they're creating. I'm wanting them to learn. And so the way I think about it is I want the student to be most comfortable in that group. And so I let students self-select their own groups, right? And, and we've heard from LGBTQ students that this is really important for them, that they try to find people that look like they're less gender conforming or that they're more you know, inclusive of LGBTQ identities because they want to feel like they could potentially reveal that identity and be themselves. That's where I typically fall. But for other people, they might have very different goals. If one of your concrete learning objectives for your course is that you want students to learn how to collaborate and you want them to learn how to collaborate so that they can take that into the real world, then I would argue that in the real world, you have to work with people of different identities. You have to work with people who may not be really similar to you and be able to engage in respectful discourse, right? And so then I would argue, mix up those groups, give students that practical skill in the context of a fairly safe classroom, right? Before, then they have to do that elsewhere. But then I would argue you've got to build into your class expectations and norms for group work. And how are you going to actually carry out that respectful dialogue, right? And not just assume that students know how to do that coming in, especially when you have it at the college level where you've got students coming from you know, in the United States, we'll have students coming from a super rural community, right, where everyone looked like them. You'll have people coming from a really urban community where they're already used to like a really diverse setting, right? And so you've got people with totally different life experiences all thrown into the same classroom. We've got to set the ground rules, right? Or else it's ignorant to think that it'll just happen magically and it'll be a good experience. So, so if that is your goal, then I would say absolutely change up groups like that. Then I, I think that, you know, if your goal is to create the best product, we know based on the literature that more diverse teams create better products because we counteract biases, right? So if the goal is a product, if you're, you know, having students work together on a research project, then I would argue probably more diverse teams is going to be better because you care not just about student learning, but you also care about the product that you end up with. So I, again, I think it depends on what the instructor's purpose is. And then I think we've got to be really thoughtful about what do we need to give students to make these experiences actually beneficial to them and, and positive. I think that makes a lot of sense is to be really uh, purposeful in the way in which you're going to set an assignment and uh, organize the class and have kids make groups. I think that makes a lot of sense. The last question I had was whether or not there were any other issues that faced LGBTQ plus uh, students or instructors that we haven't quite covered yet that, that you might want to um, bring up would help instructors to create more inclusive classes. I do want to highlight that there are definitely geographic and institutional differences so, such that there are, so we have in higher education in the United States, small private Christian schools where you can be fired for coming out as LGBTQ. So clearly the 
situation for individuals there is very different. And we've actually interviewed some folks there and, you know, they're having to like hide their identity explicitly because if they reveal it, they could lose their job. And in terms of even, you know, being a role model for students, they're having to do that very discreetly because if that, you know, emerged, then that could be really problematic. And for sure, also in the United States, you know, especially in the Southeast, it tends to be more conservative and it tends to be more anti um, LGBTQ. And so, you know, there are different challenges. I, I want to highlight that I'm not at all saying that everyone should always come out. There's going to be differences. Everyone's going to have a different level of personal comfort with coming out. I think you mentioned this earlier. We don't just come out once, <laughs> like in our lifetime, like we have to come out every day, like every class, like I essentially have to come out, right? If I if I want to choose to, to, to come out. And so, you know, so I think it's really important that we respect other people's opinions in terms of when they're comfortable coming out and, and not coming out and never try to force people to, to do it. My goal with all of this work is that as an undergraduate in college, I didn't know anyone who was an instructor who was a member of the LGBTQ community. Uh, I was deeply closeted, deeply uncomfortable. And I can't imagine how amazing that would have been for me back in the day. And I even remember, you know, as I moved through my academic journey, the first kind of person that I met who was a member of the LGBTQ community that was in any kind of like a mentoring role. And I was just beside myself at how excited I was that like, that I saw that representation and that it just made me feel more comfortable with my own identity. And so, you know, largely this work, I think, is is really meant to highlight that if people do feel uncomfortable or if people think that that is an, an option to at least consider revealing their identity in the context of the classroom so that other students can can feel more comfortable potentially sharing their identity. Yeah, and I think that's a really powerful aspect of the a range of research that the the research group does is that is highlighting the benefits of being more authentic, you know, and and being able to bring your full self into the academic context. It's really powerful to focus on the positive aspects of it rather than you know continually stay focused on on the negatives. So I, I feel like in reading a, a lot of the research that your research group has put out has really helped me to think about not only whether or not to bring more of myself into my teaching, but also be more thoughtful about how to do that. It's been really great. That is the overall goal, to try to make all of our classrooms more inclusive so that folks feel more comfortable. Because if they're more comfortable, they're likely going to get more excited about learning and learn more and, um, and then hopefully create a community of future scientists that are even more diverse. Thank you very much, Sarah, for, for taking the time to talk to me today. Uh, it's been really great, and we've covered a, a lot of ground, and I, I th hope it will be really helpful to a lot of educators out there. Great. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it.
I hope you found this little series of episodes as helpful as I have in thinking of ways to break down some of those oversimplified binaries that there can be in natural history and create more LGBTQ plus inclusive learning environments. As always, full show notes with links to related and more in-depth reading can be found at knowingnaturepodcast.wordpress.com or just click the link in the description. If you found these episodes helpful, you might like to follow Knowing Nature on Twitter at KN underscore podcast. The feed there is environmental and conservation news, interesting tidbits of natural history, and educational resources and practices. I'm also on Instagram and very recently also TikTok at Knowing Nature Pod. TikTok is still pretty scary to me, so at the moment it's just behind the scenes snippets of being in a museum, if you like that sort of thing. And do you have questions, comments, or any resources to share? Well, you can send them through to the email address, which is knowingnaturepodcast at gmail.com. And as ever, thank you so much for listening. 